Uh, tonight, I'm going to probably go a little bit deeper than I have been going in some of those uh, things, but hopefully it'll be exciting to you anyways. And so Exodus chapter 27, and we're going to read verse number 9 to verse number 18. We're going to look at the court and the gate, the court and the gate. And it says in verse number 9, Thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle for the south side, southward there shall be hangings for the court of fine twine linen of a hundred cubits long for one side. And twenty pillars thereof and their twenty sockets shall be of brass. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise for the north side in the length there, there shall be hangings of an hundred cubits long. And his twenty pillars and their twenty sockets of brass. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver. And so that, that's just talking about the two long sides of the tabernacle court. That leaves about five cubits between every pillar. And for the breadth of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits, their pillars 10 and their sockets 10. And the breadth of the court on the east side, uh, eastward, shall be 50 cubits. The hangings of the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits, their pillars 3 and their sockets 3. And on the other side shall be hangings 15 cubits, their pillars 3 and their sockets 3. And it's talking about the two sides beside the gate on the east side. So that's what he just mentioned there. Then it goes on to talk about the gate in verse 16. And it says, And for the gate of the court shall be in hanging of 20 cubits of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen, wrought with needlework, and their pillars shall be four and their sockets four. And the pillars, all the pillars round about the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their sockets of brass. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, and the breadth fifty everywhere, and the height five cubits of fine twine linen, and their sockets of brass. So that's almost eight feet high of, uh, in relation to the height of that wall as well. And so I want to talk about the court a little bit. That sounds very exciting when you read that. You just wonder, wow, there must be a lot of truth there. <laughs> Amen. Well, there actually is. There's a lot of things we can pull out of this. I think the first thing that we want to do is we want to understand God's court. Uh, many times in the scripture, he mentions the court of God. And David in the Psalms mentions the court many times. And of course, he's not talking about the tabernacle court. He's talking about the court of God in, in relation to the heavenly truth of being close to the Lord within the dynamic of the Lord's vicinity there. So what is God's court? Well, a court is simply an enclosure surrounded by a fence. Amen. Very simple. Number one, it's a place of separation. That means there's a fence there because there's something different on the outside than what's on the inside. Uh, that's why fences are important. Uh, today you read the news or you listen to the news, you read about the, the southern border. <laughs> you say, are, are fences that important? Fences are important because there's something different on the other side than there is on this side. Unless you want it to be the same on both sides. Amen. And so fences are important, and so in relation to God's court, this fence had some meaning, and it had a meaning of separation. Number two, it's also a place of safety. So once you're inside that court, then you know that you're safe from whatever's on the outside of that court. And so that's important to know as well. Uh, number three, a place where we worship God. It's, uh, that's the court. It's a place where we're close to God. And so God needed to make a place where his priests could be separated from the world, where they entered into his presence. And so it's interesting when you think about that, because he wants you to be separated 
from whatever's on the outside of that fence. And a lot of people today, they don't give that a lot of thought in relation to separation. In fact, they're trying to have church today without separation. And uh, you can't have that. You can't have Christianity without separation. You can't have church without separation. You can't be effective for God without separation. It's all important. And number four, this court also was a place of blessing. And we see that in Psalm 65, 4. It says, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. And we shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. And so it's a blessing to be in the courts of God. Uh, you know, many people today, they look at the things of God and they say, I don't want to be near the things of God. I, I'm ble- I, I want the blessing of the world. And they love the world and they don't want the things of the Lord. And they make fun of the things of the Lord. I was watching this street preacher that uh, was out on the streets and he was preaching the gospel and just quoting scripture. And it was actually King James and everything. And, and he was giving the gods, trying to give his testimony and there was this one person that was there. All she was trying to do was just speak louder than, than he was trying to speak. And, and he, she would even grab him. And, and he just kept on going, just kept on going. It's amazing. I was just standing there thinking, you know, why in the world would she do that? This has to be demonic. Like, why would you stop somebody from saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? And yet that really seemed to bother this person, you know. And reminded me of Philippi. It reminded me of, of how the Apostle Paul was preaching and that demo, demoniac woman was always chasing him and, and giving him a hard time and distracting from the message that he was giving. Finally, he cast out that demon. And I thought maybe this guy should have done that and maybe they would have shut her up. But anyways, uh, folks, it's, it's good to be in the courts of God. It's good to be in the court of God. Uh, never allow yourself to become bitter about the things of the Lord. Never think that it's better outside of those gates, outside of that fence. Uh, that's what the devil wants our children to think. They, they want to keep, he wants to keep them outside of the court of God. And I think we've got to do whatever we can to show them the blessing of being close to the Lord. And I look at the blessing of being in the house of God, in the church. I look at the blessing of being around the people of God. You know, all these things, the devil has a tactic to try to get you to hate that. Everything. He doesn't want you within those boundaries. He wants to pull you out. And so he's playing on your head with all these things. He's playing on your head with people. Wherever there's people, there's problems. Wherever there's people, there's bad attitudes and there's bad habits and there's whatever else. And it's so easy to start losing your heart for the things of God because of the people of God. Don't let that happen. Don't let it happen. We got the word of God. We got the, the blessings that God has promised us and, and the church and, and so forth. So many things that we've been blessed with. Uh, notice what he says here. It's a blessing of God's choices. It's blessed is a man whom thou choosest. So does anybody, can anybody just walk into the courts of God? That's what we've got to ask ourselves. Now, folks, I'm not a Calvinist. That's not what I'm saying here. You're not chosen to enter and then you have no choice. You'll enter because he chose but what I'm saying is, just like that woman trying to shut up that preacher, there are people who don't want to enter into that gate. But there are people that do. And when you do, the Lord is choosing you. Amen. And, and I don't understand how it all works, how God works in the heart and how he can draw certain people and certain people come and other people, you know, 
put their heels in. They say, I don't want that and so forth. All I know is God's not making that happen. God is actually, uh, those that will respond, he is choosing for them to come close to him. That's important. In fact, you look at the Psalms, it says, who is he that, that dwells in the court of God? He that hath clean hands in Psalm 15. So it's not somebody that just believes they can live in sin and wickedness and I can do what I want and I love God. And No, you don't. <laughs> you know, Those that approach unto God are those that have had an understanding of the sin that is within them. And just the fact of going towards that court itself, we're going to look at that, at the, at the, uh, at the linen around that. Uh, folks, if you don't want righteousness, you, you wouldn't approach that, that fence. You would just stay away from it. Amen. But folks did approach you because they wanted what God had there. And you know what? God has made that available to everybody. It's a blessing of God's choice. The, the word choose us means to take a keen look at and to prove and to choose. And so I think that, you know, a lot of people think that getting saved is, well, I just received Jesus and it doesn't matter how I think about sin. I think it all starts with how you think about sin. I don't think you'll want Jesus unless you dealt with, with the aspect of sin in your heart. Why would you? <laughs> Why would you want him? Why would you need him? And so needing Jesus has a lot to do with the sin that's within you. That's why the Bible says repentance toward God and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a process of approaching God. Amen? And we need to understand that. There's also a blessing of dwelling. He says, and who chooses and causes to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. That dwell, that means to settle down. That means to find a resting place. That means to have, find peace and security. That's what's within those courts of God. Uh, there's also the blessing of satisfaction. And he goes on to say that. He says, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house. And so, are we satisfied? Are you satisfied with life? Are you, uh, do you know that you're satisfied? Have you drawn close to him and experienced the fact that I am satisfied with life? Uh, I'm not discontent. I'm not angry at my lot in life. Some people are. They even go to church and they're still not satisfied, you know? And the fact of the matter is, the Lord says, if you're truly dwelling in the courts of God, you will be satisfied. You'll be filled. That's what that means. It means to have had enough of something or too much. Enough or too much. And so there's no such thing as us not having enough if we're close to God. You will have the peace you need. You will have the joy you need. You will have the strength you need. You'll have all those things when you get close to the Lord and dwell in his courts. And it goes on to say in, in Psalm 92 verse 13, it says, Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. So he causes us to flourish or uh, bud or spring forth, the Bible says. So I just wanted to bring that out, that aspect of the courts of God. Uh, letter B, the longing for God's courts. In Psalm 84 verse 1, it says, How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee, Selah. 
Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, and whose heart are the ways of them. Who passing through the valley of Baca, make it a well, the rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength, every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. That's great, amen. Do we actually long to be with the Lord that way? Do we long to actually be close to him and to be satisfied by God like that, you know? Or are you just happy just kind of meandering in the world and enjoying the world and everything it's got to offer? I think we need to contemplate that a little bit. Do we really want to be close to the Lord? Now I'm talking to the Wednesday night crowd, you know? You're here tonight because there's something you're looking for, amen? Unless you're just a robot, you're, you're programmed, you know? But I think a lot of people are here, if not all of you are here, because there's something in your heart that you are seeking for. And I think that God will give you that. And I think that is exactly what it's talking about. It's, it's about the courts of God. And it's not a, a place of geography here right now. It's a place where we find it in our hearts with the Lord. Amen. That's dwelling in the courts of God. That, that's the fellowship that we're talking about. And that's why it says with David, you know, who, shall, who, will, who will dwell in the court of God? Those that have clean hands. Those that have a pure heart. Now, you can't go and sin and think you're going to be close to God. <laughs> you're not going to long for the things of the Lord when you want sin in your life. But if you see your sin and you repent and say, Lord, help me with this. I mean, that's longing, you know. It's seeing our weakness and wanting what the Lord has to offer us. I mean, that's good. Longeth means to desire, to long for. It refers to a strong, affectionate desire for someone or something. And I think all of us, and I look at myself too, I say, man, Lord, do I really have that kind of a strong longing for you? And I need to really uh, look at myself and say, Lord, am I so distracted with the busyness of the day and the busyness of life that I don't want you the way I should? Amen. That's a truth about the courts of God. We should want that. Would I live my whole life just meandering around the tents of Israel and looking at the courts from a distance without actually desiring to go in there and to be close to the things of God, like many people do. You know, we should have a longing for our, for our Lord. And let her see, and finally, and this point is, thanksgiving in God's court. Psalm 100, verse 4, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and bless his name. I think maybe this is some of the reasons why we don't enter in or maybe we don't see the importance of entering in because we're not grateful. It says enter in with thanksgiving. It doesn't say enter in and then you're going to learn to be thankful. It says actually you got to go to the door with a thankful heart. Amen? Go in thankful. Now what's the opposite of thankful? Well, that's bitterness. That's discontentment. You know, 
And so you got to ask yourself, am I discontent with life? Am I bitter at people? Am I angry? Do I have an anger problem? You know, there's a reason why I'm not fellowshipping in the courts of God. Because I'm not thankful. I'm not going in with thanksgiving. And so that's something we need to consider in relation to the courts of God. Let's go to number two. Entering God's court. Letter A, the fine line, the fine line, the fine linen fence represents righteousness. Righteousness. And so this whole fence that was around this 100 by 150 and 50 cubits is all fine linen, uh, white. And so Revelation 19.8, it, it talks about fine linen on the saints. It says, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now that's interesting. We'll look at that a little bit. Uh, letter B the contrast of our sin, and I've said this before, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time. In fact, I pulled out a whole bunch of points that I was going to put in there, and I, I took them out. But, you know, in Song of Solomon 1, verse 5, it says this, I am black but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. And so the tents of that day were actually made from the, 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 the skin or the, the coats of goats, the black goat. And so when you look at Israel, the tents that they were in, and then you see the white linen fence, the contrast. So here we are dwelling in the black tents, and then we look over to the center, and we see the white fine linen. And so there's a contrast here between us and God, and he wants us to see that. The Bible says, but we are all an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Isaiah 59, verse 2, it says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. Now, why is it that people are separated from God? <laughs> because of our sin is one answer. But then you look over at the fence, you say, because of his holiness. That's why we're separated from God. <laughs> Not only because I'm doing bad, but because God is too good. <laughs> I mean, he's just too high and holy. There's no way I can enter in. There's no way I can be in the courts of God. There's no way I can be clean enough for the Lord. Amen? And that's the whole key about how it is that the Lord wants us to enter in and the way he wants us to enter into that court. Amen? There's a, there's a contrast here. And so, uh, number three... I'm going to move on quickly with this. The pillars of God's court. So we have 60 pillars that held up this fence. They were placed in sockets of brass. They were topped with capitals of silver. They were five cubits high, five cubits between them. And the pillars will show us strength and sufficiency of the refuge that a sinner may flee to. There's other things that this represents as well. Uh, in Proverbs 9 verse 1, it says, Wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. Uh, Galatians 2.9, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we may go unto the heathen. So here we see that people in the church that God was using to lead became the pillars of that church. And they seemed to be pillars. They were thought to be pillars. It wasn't him criticizing them. Oh, they, they're thinking they're pillars. He's saying that they, they were thought in the minds of the people because of who they were and what they represented 
to be pillars. Pillars, strength, that, that held up the house. Amen? Very important. First uh, Timothy 3.15, it says, But if I tarry long, that thou, knowest, thou mayest know how thou oughtest behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So we as the church ought to be a pillar. We are that important strength of, of truth in this world. That's why I say, if we're not going to hold up the, the standard of truth, you can't expect any other organization on this planet to do it. If we're not doing the right thing, then who do we think is going to do the right thing? If we're not going to take the hit for doing the right thing, then who in the world is going to take the hit for doing the right thing? You know, we are the end of the line here. Like I said this Sunday, we are the conscience of the nation. We are to be the conscience of our city. They ought to know what this church stands for. And when they do something wicked in the community, they ought to know that their churches are against that. Without us holding up picket signs. Because of what we stand for, what we preach, and what we hold to. But if we ourselves are living wickedly and we're not doing right within the church, we're no conscience, we're no pillar, we're no strength. Amen? So here we see that strength is just so important. The, the aspect of these pillars, letter A, the security of the pillars. Each pillar is set in sockets of brass. So brass, of course, we've looked at this before, always represents judgment, the judgment of God. The judgment of sin uh, on the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 30, verse 4, it says, Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Sockets is basically a base or a pedestal or something basically for the pillar to rest into and become a foundation for that pillar. And so this is our security. Every one of us. Every one of us that want to do right and be right, you know, you can't say, I'm not going to do, I, I can't do the right thing because, you know, I'm no good. Or I'm, That is not your security. Your security isn't your integrity necessarily. Your security is in your base. It's in your foundation. Amen? So we could every day wake up in the morning and say, I'm not going to do anything for God because I don't feel worthy enough. Well, then we just wouldn't do anything for God. We've got to become secure in the base that has been laid for us, the foundation that's underneath us. That's the judgment that's been placed on Christ. We stand before God righteously because of the judgment on Christ. Is that your foundation? Or is it that we're looking at life and saying, I can't, I can't serve in the church because I'm, I'm such a bad person, or I can't make right choices, or I can never be as good as that guy, <laughs> you know. We've got to realize where the security of our life exists, and that's in our salvation. That's in what Christ has done for us. It has to start there. Now, I'm not saying it's not important how you live, but I'm saying your security isn't in how you live. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Arminianism, Calvinism, they both put their security in their performance, both of them. Arminius say, if I'm not doing exactly right, I lose my salvation. <laughs> Calvinists say, if I don't persevere, then I'm not part of the elect. So you could think that you're part of the elect, then all of a sudden you have a bad week, a bad month, a bad year, whatever it is, and you're not persevering the way that you ought to, and right away you doubt. 
maybe I'm not part of the elect. I remember uh, uh, a book written by R.C. Sproul, and he's a very, uh, he, he was a very famous Calvinist, and he ties with John MacArthur quite a bit. And he, in this book, he wrote how he struggled even after he was pastoring and after he was writing and preaching because he felt that he didn't love God enough, that he wasn't doing right enough, and he began to question whether he was one of the elect. It's called perseverance of the saints. Some Baptists say, oh, I believe that. No, you don't. <laughs> Folks, we will persevere, but if you have that as a tenant of whether you're saved or not, you're going to fail in life. I don't hold to the perseverance of the saints. I believe in the preservation of the saints. We're preserved in Christ Jesus. According to what? Our performance? No. According to promise. That's where it has to rest in. <laughs> Those are the sockets. Amen? It has to be what Christ has done for you. The living word. And the Bible talks about that. It says, uh, it says For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid which is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. So when you start looking at your performance and you start thinking that somehow you are going to rest, whether you're saved or not, upon your performance, <laughs> either you're very proud, you're very deceived, because people are. People deceive themselves that somehow they're performing well enough to actually be considered worthy of heaven. There's not one of you that can wake up in the morning and say that. In fact, it's the fact that we know we're not worthy that drives us to loving the Lord, drives us to trusting his promises and going forward by faith. Amen? You know you're not good enough. <laughs> Never have been. And so it's so interesting because I, I thought about that one day when I was thinking about Arminianism and Calvinism. These are supposed to be opposite. But in their complete opposite positions, they have become the same. They both put their faith in performance. <laughs> Practically, whether I'm performing or not. Whether you're an Arminius or a Calvinist. Folks, that's not a true Christian. A true Christian believes they're preserved because of the promise. You're resting in the socket. <laughs> the living word, the foundation that's been laid, but then also... The written word, Ephesians 2.20 says, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. That foundation of the apostles and prophets were the books that were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, the word of God. That's our foundation. Amen. Nothing about you in there. Jesus, the living word, the Bible, the written word. These are your foundation. Amen. All right, let's move on. Letter B. The stability of the pillars. This is good too. The pins and the cords. Say, what's the important about pins and cords? You ever put up a tent before? Have you ever put up a tent and then forgot the pins? Or you didn't have enough pins or your pins were broken from the time because those plastic ones always snap off with a hammer and you're beating them into the hard ground and they break. You ever done that? How, how easy it is to get stability in your tent without pins. Well, here, the, the Bible is telling us this courtyard, the pillars were held up by pins of brass and cords. 
strong ropes that were holding them down. And I'm glad they're not plastic pins. <laughs> they would have broke just like our 10 pins. Amen. You know what I'm talking about. Pins. It, it's a stake or a, it's a wooden peg or nail. These were brass. And the cords were a strong cord or a rope-like string. You say, well, that's pretty simple. But the thing is this. Even though you want to be a pillar, you need to have pins. Little tiny pins. You say, well, that's a lot smaller than the pillar. But it's amazing that the uprightness of the pillar is depending upon whether that pin is holding the weight or not. And I think that every one of us has to have pins. I'll give you a pin. Romans 14.4 Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. That's a pin. I'll give you another pin. John 10 verse 28 I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That's a pin. That's a pin that you have to have nailed down to hold your pillar up straight. Uh, how, how about the next verse, my father which gave me them is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. See, folks, you need all kinds of pins like that to hold up your pillars, <laughs> you know. And I, you know, I've talked to people that, that teach you to lose your salvation. And I go to a verse like this. I've never had one yet that explained to me what this meant. They just jump to another passage. You read them this, and they say, oh, yeah, but what about? No, no, no. We're not going to what about. We're talking about John 10. <laughs> what does this mean? That they shall never perish. What does it mean? That no man shall pluck them out of my hand. Right? They don't know how to explain that. Well, it's because they're believing a lie. They're not believing the truth. I and my Father are one. Here's another pin, Colossians 3.3. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Your life is hid in Christ. Are you scared about your life? You're scared you're going to lose your life? <laughs> are you scared of what's going to happen with your life? Folks, your life is already hidden with Christ. It's inside of him. And Christ is in God. You're in Christ, Christ in God. Amen? That's a pin that you need to nail down beside your pillar. I tell you, I can go all night and just talking about the pins that you ought to have nailed down. Not broken plastic pins, but good pins of brass that cost something. Every one of these had a cost to them. No man shall pluck you out of my father's hand. It cost his life for that. It's a brass pin. Amen? So important. And I encourage you, when you go through the Bible, just start, wow, there's a pin, you know, and draw a little pin beside it or something, but get some pins down in your life. And, and know the reason why you're standing so strong. It's not because you're great or you've got great constitution. It's because of all these promises that are holding you up with strong cords. Amen? They're keeping you straight. And so you've got to have pins in your life. And so let's move on. Let her see. The unity of the pillars. It talks about in verse 17, And the pillars round about the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their sockets of brass. Now we've talked about this a little bit with the boards of the tabernacle, how each one of the boards were, were also filleted together with gold rods. And those gold rods kept all of them together, and that's us. 
We are the boards of the tabernacle. And it's God's divine purpose that keeps us unified together as the house of God. But here there's something else. He's talking now we're filleted with silver. With silver. Their hooks shall be of silver. And their sockets of brass. So filleted means to be attached to. It means to love, to delight in, to bind. So we're bound together by fillets of silver. <laughs> leading through each one of us a bar that's keeping us all connected. Now, I read one guy and he said uh, part of the, even the hooks themselves that these, the, the silver bars were hanging on is a symbol of Christ's imputation towards us of his righteousness as that's holding up the fine twine linen fence. Amen? Silver represents the ransom paid for Christ. It represents redemption. The fence is connected to the pillars by silver rings. Silver rods hold up the fence connected by silver rings. The silver hooks on which the curtains are hung speak of Christ's ability to impute his righteousness to us through his redemption. And you see that uh, within the law in Exodus chapter 30, it talks about the atonement money, which was always silver. The atonement money. The silver made the pillars one, unified. So what holds us all together here is our common redemption and our imputation of righteousness towards us. So the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, For as the body is one and hath many members, all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. We're unified that way. Amen? We've got to start thinking like that, folks. We, we've got to start realizing that, that us here today as the children of God, it's more than just people getting together to have a meeting and to hear something and then go home. Like, we've got to realize there's something more to this. <laughs> I like what uh, Brother Cook told me one time uh, in class. He says, the church is not an organization. The church is an organism. It's an organism. A church is birthed and a church dies. It's not an organism. It's not an organization. It's an organism. <laughs> so when God brings you here, you are through his redemption brought into that body to be a part of that life that he's trying to bring into that community through that local church. Boy, would that change the way that we look at ourselves within God's church. Amen? It really would. I mean, I think people ought to have a, have a lesson in that because sometimes I just wonder, do they really care about their local assembly? It, it, like, is, is this church just about how great I am as a pastor? Or is it more than that? Some people, they would, they would sell out this whole church on how they think about me as a pastor. So the whole idea of the church has to do with me. <laughs> you know, that's not what a church is. A church has connected everybody. And it's funny, you know, that when people leave that way and they, they kind of take off on you and they blame the pastor for it or whatever it is, they don't even, for one second, it doesn't dawn on them how they are the ones that have forsaken the people. They are the ones. <laughs> Amen? 
Nobody else did it. <laughs> I didn't do it. I'm still here. Why is that? Why is that? I think the devil gets us so wrapped up in blaming like Adam in the garden. It's the woman that thou gavest me. It's the devil uh, made me do it and all these things. We really miss the damage that we're doing and really what's really going on when we're making these decisions in our life. Amen. Now, there's an important reason why we stand together as pillars. And I want to talk about that in this next point, the responsibility of the pillars. Now, number one, the pillars were upright. Now, 10, if you would do uh, math in this whole thing, it's always divisions of 10. 10 is the Decalogue. It's, it's the Ten Commandments. It's, it's, a, it's an expression of the righteousness of God, you know, the fine twine linen, we're, we're here to represent that which is right and perfect with God. That's our whole thing that we're trying to do. It's not about glorifying sin or having a motto, nobody's perfect in the church, and let's just, oh, well, we'll just, you know. No, we, we set up this standard that, hey, God wants us to be more than we are, and we all aim towards that, and we, we, we hold up that fine, line, that fine twine linen, so that the people out in the world can see the contrast from where they are to where we are. See, that's why he says, who are those that dwell in the court of the Almighty God? Well, those that have clean hands. Not those that are making mockery of righteousness. Not those that are making light of sin in their life. Now, you're battling with sin. We all battle with sin. But you know what? It's a whole different thing when we are making mockery of it or we're making light of it or we're saying it doesn't matter or, hey, what about mercy? And all you folks, I understand mercy, but mercy is only there for those that, the people that actually want it. And if you want mercy, it's there. But if you don't want it, it's not there. It's just judgment. <laughs> Amen? So mercy is always available to every Every person on the planet. <laughs> but is everybody going to heaven? No. So in all reality, there's no mercy in their lives. Because you have to want the mercy. Amen? So, the Ten Commandments. There are six times ten pillars. The court sides were five times ten, and the other side was ten times ten. There were ten servants that were given ten talents, and the Lord says, occupy until I come. Ten times ten. The ten virgins with the ten lamps. Always ten. Ten is the number of responsibility in the Bible. And so when he, when he divided up this courtyard, he says, I want you to picture yourself as one of those pillars holding up that righteousness, which isn't your own. It's something that's been imputed and imparted to you through Christ and your foundation is in the promises and what Christ has done for you. But the fact of the matter is, I'm still looking for you, ten servants with ten talents, to occupy until I come. He wants us to do right. Amen? And I don't say that in a, in a relation to, if you don't do right, you're not going to heaven. But I'm saying, we can do right... <laughs> Because we know we're going to heaven. Because we have heaven already within us. So we can hold forth that fine twine linen to the world. Amen? We can hold that up. We've got pins that are keeping us solid and upright. 
The Word of God. It's important. It's interesting as well that the pillars were covered. And if there's a little drawing on your, uh, on your worksheet there, notice that the pillars aren't on the outside. The pillars are on the inside. So the, the righteousness is being lifted up, covering the pillars. But the pillars are holding up the wall. That's important. We're not here to, to put ourselves on a show. We cover ourselves. We cover ourselves in the righteousness of Christ. And folks, whether I'm preaching, or whether we're serving, whether we're living, whatever it is, we're not saying, look at me. We're always saying, look at Christ. And guess what? He's got a place for you to be a pillar too. But you can't have this flippant idea towards sin. You can't have this flippant idea towards the word of God. You've got to have some pins in your life. You've got to realize how you're connected together. Amen. You've got to be a part of God's plan. So there's righteousness that people need to see. They need to see that there's the righteousness of Christ for salvation. When you're talking to people, you're not saying, hey, do what I do so you can go to heaven. You're saying, no. There's a righteousness from heaven above that he will give to you so that you can be saved. Impute to you. Amen. Not only that, when we're serving God, we're saying, hey, the righteousness that we're doing, it's not about what I'm doing. It's simply what Jesus told us to do. The righteousness of Christ for service. See, I think sometimes we claim, Christ, we, we claim righteousness and we call it Christ. You know, the Bible says, For I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. See, that's what it's about. It's about doing his faith. Not your faith. It's not about you choosing what you're going to do. <laughs> See, none of us, can stand up and say, look at everything I've done. Because there's nothing you've done. All we have done is simply followed what Jesus has asked us to do. Simply following the faith of Christ. The world needs to see that it's not you. That it's all about Jesus. The pillar is covered. Amen. Whether it's for salvation or service, it's all about his righteousness. So I always tell people, you know, uh, so many times in college, You'd have young men come in there, and they say, well, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to do. I say, hold on there, man. I don't want to hear what you got to do or want to do. It has nothing to do with what you want to do. You just do what Christ asked you to do today. You know, some of these guys, they wouldn't even be doing anything for God. They'd be out there acting like an idiot half the time. And then they talked about this big call that God had on their life. I'm sorry, it's not happening. Everything you do is based upon your simple obedience to what Jesus has asked you to do. The little things. <laughs> Everybody, you know, they focus on the big thing. I'm going I'm to do this. And they got this big horizon put out in front of them. I'm going to hit that horizon one day. And yet they don't see the thousands of things every day that they're not following the Lord in. He's saying, how can you ever get there when you're not even here? How, why, how can you think you can do the will of God over there when you're not even doing the will of God over here? And you need to know that. <laughs> you know, 
There's things that the Lord asks you to do according to his promises, and you can, you can go to the Bible, and he can tell you directly, this is how I want you to handle things. This is how I want you to forgive. This is how I want you to be in the church. This is how thou oughtest to behave thyself. This is how you deal with erring members. This is whatever. It's all about just following the Bible. But then there's also aspects where if you're doing those things in the general way, the Lord will speak to you in specific ways. But I don't take people seriously that are telling me about a specific thing God is telling them when they're not even obeying the general things. <laughs> the specific comes after the general. Well, God's called me to this country. Well, then why are you, why are you doing what you're doing now? Why are you being immoral? Why are you watching the wrong things on television? Why are you on watching pornography? Why are whatever it may be? I mean, you name it. <laughs> The Lord has commands for all those things. It's all the will of God. And somehow God has spoken to me specifically, and I'm not even listening to him generally. Forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together, but they don't even have a, a heart for the people of God. They don't care about the people of God. They don't love the people of God. And somehow God's got this calling for you. I'm sorry, I don't believe it. That's because we like ripping Christ's righteousness off calling it our own. I believe if the world's going to see something from us, we have to be hidden. We have to be hidden. And you know what? They need to know that our salvation is all about Jesus and what he has done. They need to know that our service is all about Jesus and what he is doing through us. Not our own fabrication, not our own ideas. Well, this is what I'm going to do for God. doesn't exist. You don't do something for him. He's the only one that's ever done something for somebody. Christ died for us. The word for means in my place. We don't do something in his place. We do something with him. Labors together with God. Not for God. And now you'll find in the scripture where it talks about for but there's different meanings of the word for, you see. We're not supposed to come up with our own idea here. We're supposed to simply allow the Lord to guide us and direct us in his will for our life and let him take us in his path for our life. Can two walk together except they be agreed? The Lord's walking along here. He knows where he's going. He knows exactly where he's going. He's got it all laid out. Guess what happened? Guess who leaves the track? Well, me. <laughs> I start thinking my own way. I go this way. He's not turning. I'm turning. So I've got to repent. I've got to come back and right back to where he was walking. I've got to be in agreement with him all the time. If I'm not in agreement with him all the time, I'm not walking with him. Amen? And you look at John, 1 John chapter 1, same, same methodology, same concept is given there. Anyways, let's move on. Number three. The pillars and silver rods direct the sinner to the gate. You know, this court wall was not to be climbed. It wasn't designed for climbing. <laughs> you might try it, but if it's not designed for it, it shouldn't be happening. <laughs> John 10.1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. So we don't climb over the top of this, this wall. So what we do... As all of our pillars are together and we've got our hooks in us 
and we've got that rod of silver running through. The, all they have to do is follow the fence. All they're doing is following this rod around. And ultimately, at some point, whether you, no matter where you start, no matter which way you go, you're going to end up at what's called the gate. And that is our responsibility. Our responsibility isn't to tell them how to jump over the fence. Our responsibility is to direct them to where the gate is. Amen? No matter where they come at the wall, <laughs> they'll look at that wall, they'll see the bars, they'll say, oh, I wonder how this is all connected. There's got to be an opening somewhere. And they'll follow that along until they get to that gate. And that's important. We need to understand what that gate is. So the court wall would only open at the door. So number four, the gate. And we'll be done. I'm going to go very quickly here. The gate is Christ, and the pillars are his gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There's four of them. And I already mentioned to you how the, then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. Number one, there's a color there, and he's mentioned four colors. The one is blue. This means that Jesus Christ is God. There are certain things that you cannot negate if you want to enter into that gate. You have to accept these things. If you don't, you can't go in. Amen. So anybody that does not believe that Jesus Christ is God cannot enter into this court, courtyard. And that's a lot of people, folks. We're talking the Mormons. You're talking Jehovah's Witnesses. You're talking the Muslims. You're talking a lot of groups. Billions and billions of people will not believe that first statement of who Jesus Christ is, that he is God. John 3.13, this is the Gospel of John. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Amen. John 20, verse 30. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So the book of John <clears throat> and everything that Jesus did in the book of John was there to show you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God so that you can enter into the gate. Amen. So when you read the book of John, what you want to do is say, hey, I want to find out every little thing, every little pin I can find about how that Jesus Christ is God and how God is trying to show that to me through this gospel of John. Amen? Because that's what it's all about. It's relating to the, uh, the flying eagle in Revelation 4-7. It's talking about these four beasts. And the first beast was like a lion. The second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face of a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And that's in relation to John. That's in relation to the color blue. Uh, number two, purple. <clears throat> this is Jesus Christ is king. Matthew 27-11 and Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. He didn't deny that. 
Because I am the king of the Jews. You're just not going far enough. I'm your king too, <laughs> you know. Matthew is written to give us the idea of Jesus Christ as the king. In the first chapter, you have the royal lineage. It gives you the lineage through David all the way down to Joseph of the royal line through Solomon. And Jesus Christ is in that line. So he is the king. In Matthew 27, verse 35, And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. See, that governor that asked Jesus, Are you the King of the Jews? Jesus didn't deny it. Thou sayest it. He puts that as his accusation. He didn't know, whatever to, he didn't know what to put there. <laughs> there was no crime. He didn't steal. He didn't murder. He didn't lie. In fact, Pilate himself says, I find no fault in this man. All he could think of to put on that little board up there was, this is the king of the Jews. This is why you're killing him, people. He's claiming to be king. And you don't believe it. <laughs> but he was the king. That's why a lot of people that day, they missed the gate. They would not accept Jesus Christ as the king. They spit on him. Matthew 25, 31, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Amen? Boy, what a day that, that's going to be. This is referring to the lion in Revelation 4, verse 7. And the first beast was like a lion. Of course, Jesus Christ is the lion of Judah. In Revelation 5, 5, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Number three is scarlet. Jesus Christ is our atonement. Our atonement. And we're looking at the Gospel of Mark. Mark 9, 31 for he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. I like his statement in Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So he tied servitude to atonement, to death. He gave his life as a servant to die for us. This is in relation to the bullock in Revelation 4, verse 7. And the first was like a lion. The second was, beast was like a calf because it was the bullock that was the beast of burden. They would be the ones pulling the plows and doing the, the servitude on the farms. Uh, it's interesting. The Roman coin of that day read can be used for service as well as sacrifice. <laughs> that was the theme on there. Interesting, Amen. So servitude and atonement. Number four, fine twine linen. Jesus Christ, the perfect man. The perfect man. Luke 1.35, it's no wonder this statement was made here. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Right off the bat, he's saying that's a holy thing. With, with no sin, perfection. Then, of course, I mentioned about Pilate. Then said Pilate to the chief priest and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And, of course, that's 
the fourth beast or the fourth had the fa- third beast had a face of a man. It says in Revelation 4, verse 7. So these four pillars are coinciding with the four colors, coinciding with the four gospels, coinciding with the four beasts that we see in Revelation 4, verse number 7. All right? And I think that's it. Let's bow our heads. So these are things that have to be accepted. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is King. Jesus Christ is your atonement, scarlet. And Jesus Christ is the perfect man, sinless. No sin within him. Made him the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Those four things have to be agreed upon if you want to enter into that gate and enter that court. And I hold trust that all of us today have made that decision. If not, I encourage you to make the decision to trust Christ as your Savior. Trust Him as being God. Trust Him as being King. Trust Him as shedding His blood for your sins. And trust Him that He is the perfect, sinless sacrifice that paid for your sins. I don't know how the Lord spoke to you about being a pillar. Upright, pinned down, cords holding you upright. Folks, are you wavering in the world that you're living in today? Are you wavering in your testimony? Are you wavering in your church life? Are you dwelling in the courts of God? Are your hands clean? Is your heart pure? It's important that we treat this the right way. That's the only way God's going to use us 